Welcome to the Product Quest Podcast, where Jan Vermouth, Jonathan Edwards, and myself, Scott Burleson, we're on a quest to better understand innovation, marketing, product development. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Lindsay Zaltman. If you missed the first half, you might start there first. Lindsay is CEO and partner of Olson Zaltman, a research firm that specializes in uncovering customer needs using deep metaphors. We pick up the action as I ask a question that I'm perpetually looking for insight from, from many practitioners, about the proper balance between qualitative and quantitative research. You yeah. hit on a question that I was, I was going to wanted to ask about. I was waiting for the right time. And the, you mentioned it's a largely a qualitative method. So with you know, some market researcher re- techniques, you, know, you do a qualitative and you gather a lot of things and you have a survey or then you go to a, it's a high sample to make sure you have confidence in the numbers. Mm-hmm. But certainly we've talked to researchers and that use strictly qualitative techniques with fantastic results. So I, I, I think we're sort where we don't have any judgment either way, but just what's the, is yours m- more of a qualitative method where there's not a survey at the end or, or how does it? Hey, yeah. yeah, exactly. So ZMED is really good at surfacing all of, the jobs or needs within it, whatever, you know, or even within a job, sometimes that's how we're brought in. Also, you guys have laid the groundwork for a jobs to be done study for your clients. And now they say, oh, these two are a particular interest to us. And we can go do a deep ZMED on those two to bring them to life. But it's good at bringing those to life, kind of the overall essence, but it is qualitative. So if, if a client wants to see which of these are you know, the bigger market opportunity, we can sometimes answer that qualitatively, but it's really, you know, then you need to go quantify them in a proper study um, to do that. So we're very much the kind of here are all of the ideas and then you need some sort of quantification. But to your point too, I think, you know, we have a lot of clients that don't go and do that quantitative step because they just feel really good about it. And sometimes you just kind of know this one's more important than that one. Or sometimes your strategy is let's do all of them or, you know, whatever it is. And so, um, yeah, we have a lot of clients too that uh, just just do the qualitative part as well. And I, I think, yeah, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just your comfort level and, you know, where you kind of put your focus. Is there, what percent of the time would you say that you feel like based on the qualitative, we feel good about, hey, we can make some decisions and develop and do whatever we do. Or it's like, you know what, we really need, we need, we need some more quantitative data. Do you have a sense of what that makes? Yeah. Be? I always feel really good about the qual because we've done it. And so, but, uh, but, you know, I, mean, I, I think you can make a lot of decisions. I think there's some strength in numbers. Um, I, I, I don't know the percentage. I think there's a lot of times you do, I mean, you're making a big multi-billion dollar decision to go into this market or that market or this Avenue within that market or that, you know, um, you know, big decisions being made, I think you want some strength in numbers and have some quantification to back it up. So I think in most cases, it's good to do that. But in a lot of cases, you know, it's our job is all of our jobs as managers, us, our clients, agencies, design firms, like, you know, talk about it as being consumer led versus consumer informed. I think you want to be consumer informed. You want to elaborate on that. I think that's a very important distinction. So, you know, you, you want to understand your consumers so well that you can then take them somewhere they couldn't imagine themselves or that quantification wouldn't answer for you because we all know, you know, what it is, what it is about them that makes them tick. 
um, versus consumer led or data led in a, you know, another sense is just, this is what the data tells us, let's go do that. Um, so, you know, we like to kind of work with clients who are kind of more comfortable or help clients start to think about that. Um, talk about it also in a similar way of, um, you know, anticipate and lead. So anticipate what your consumers want and then lead them there. Something, you know, they're not going to be able to necessarily articulate themselves. I think that's why we have a lot of these kind of smaller innovations and your successful, you, you know, someone's innovation for the year might be like, let's make the package 5% bigger or, you know, those aren't award-winning innovations or game-changing innovations. That's because you're listening to your customer. What do the customers say? Oh, I'd like a little bit bigger of a bag. Okay. Well, they told us they want a little bit bigger of a bag. Let's make a little bit bigger of a bag because you're led by the consumers, what they're telling you. That's not really what they want. What they want is a, a better experience or, you know, something like this. And so yeah. that's where the bigger innovations happen when us as managers say, let's, you know, they didn't say this explicitly, but I feel pretty darn good that, you know, we could connect the dots to this big idea. So. Yeah. I completely agree there because there's there's this danger of well okay let, let me like maybe take a little bit of a loop so it's very great I think a lot of companies have learned okay we have to go out to the consumer that wasn't always the case that they did that but I yeah. think a lot of right <laughs> so I'm yes I'm that old so anyway so they have learned this by now and but the danger is that many of them go out and then they ask exactly in the way you 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 showed they ask directly for solution input or solution ideas. And what, what, what can happen is that, in, and I just had a, a, a discussion, I think yesterday or the, the, or the day before, with somebody that did exactly this, it was in a bank context or in, a financial, uh, in the financial industry. They asked what their clients wanted and they built this. So it was kind of a, a way of showing um, how, how your personal finances and they built this and, and none of the clients actually used it in, in the end. So yeah. if you ask them directly for the solution and you think, okay, a great idea, thank you very much. And you go and build what they told you on a surface level, what they want, it, that, is not what, that is not what they've asked for. So, yeah. And jobs exactly. to be done is a way of looking at this. And you, you seem to have found, or the, the, the ZMED is another way of, of, of understanding what they want without it being exactly what they have said in a certain sense. Yeah. That's exactly right. We did a study for Oticon, which is a Danish company, hearing aid manufacturer. Yeah. Um, I think they invented the hearing aid like 115 years ago mm. or so, but they're one of the big players in it. It was a classic study asking people who had hearing impairment um, about their thoughts and feelings about hearing aids. And these were people who were told by a professional to get a hearing aid yet didn't. It's a huge part of that population. There's some so stigmas around it and they just don't do That's it. That's like the big, the big questions there. Were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so when you asked them what they wanted out of a hearing aid, they would literally say, you know, you could just make it a little smaller, make more skin, skin, skin tone color. So I can get one that exactly matches uh, my skin. So I can keep hiding this thing and be, you know, this, that I'm shameful of. Um, that's what everyone in the industry is doing. And they were only getting 20%, the classic 80, 20 rule, only 20% of the people were willing to buy because of that, but that was the innovations that everyone was doing every year, just doing these yeah. little things. Oticon, after doing a study like this, start to realize that let's think about this differently and using kind of extrapolating from a different industry, eyeglasses. Why is it that, you know, people, it's another deteriorating sense that we have, but why is there not a shame in eyeglasses? Why, in fact, will some people pay like a thousand dollars for this bright purple pair of frames that's actually telling people I'm flawed, I have a, a sight problem? 
but yet you're embarrassed to do that with your hearing. And so changing the way people think about that, they came out with this really cool Delta was the product, but uh, it was tied to these deep metaphors um, that we had about transformation um, and freedom, uh, freedom from containment and everything too. But the, the big thing there was coming out with these color patterns, like, you know, bright blues, oranges, yellows, camouflage, leopard skin, zebra, exactly what consumers would never tell you they wanted out of a product. Uh, you would never hear, you know, maybe make it camouflage. And, but that's what they did. And it came out and it mm. sold beautifully. Everyone else in the industry went out and made similar copies of it because you really understood what they really wanted and then helped bring them to somewhere they couldn't imagine themselves. And so yeah, there's a lot of those kind of cases that out there. Yeah, that's, a, that's I think that's a, a very nice example. I mean, the hearing aid industry is, maybe that's also kind of, I mean, we did a couple of, of we worked a lot in, in, in the hearing aid industry. Maybe that's also something that they're telling themselves. And they're so occupied with the stigma around hearing aids. And I, I remember so well that, I think it was two or three years ago where we did a, an interview with somebody in the US and I'm sure she was a teenager, like 18, 19 years old, something like that. And she put like little diamonds on her hearing aid and kind of built in a hook so that you can hang on her, her what you would normally put on her ears, you can now put on her hearing aid. So, and so this idea of, 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 I need to hide it, I'm ashamed of it, was completely, that, that was not her concern. I mean, she made yeah. it much more beautiful and used it as a, I mean, she turned it into a positive. Which was ha which happens the same thing happened with glasses, right? You you turn a negative into something positive, and I think yeah. if you would yeah, just talk about hearing aids, then oh, um, it makes me look old, blah blah blah. blah. So anyway, yeah, that's yeah, that's neat. I love yeah. the example. Um, I'm sorry, I, I kind of losing myself here in the in the heat of the discussion, but um, I was wondering, you you, you mentioned or touched upon this a little bit, um kind of understanding people in a different way. And I, and I think I've seen you somewhere say that you're, you're even trying to understand the consumer better than they understand themselves. Now, for me, that rings a bell. I have heard that quote before somewhere. Is that, or did you come up with this? But I heard it, uh, it's, it's Schleiermacher in, in, in the background there, or is that not the case? <laughs> There's different ways of saying it. I, I, first heard it from my dad and he talks about it uh is uncovering what consumers don't know they know and that's the kind oh, of okay that's, that's the, the original that statement okay. too yeah and that's what we were talking about you know earlier in the conversation it's in there it's in their mind somewhere and uh you know yeah. they don't they know it because it's in there but they don't know that they know it <laughs> so yeah right questions and it brings it out and all of a sudden they start realizing um that that was in there so yeah yeah that's Can you nice. think of an example that sort of makes that tangible? Like what's some example of something somebody doesn't know that they know? We did a study uh, with heartburn sufferers um, for this pharmaceutical study again, too. And consumers there would talk. It was a really a irrational. It was fascinating, but irrational. These people all had heartburn and they'd eat spicy food. They, they, you know, they'd eat a spicy food or do something that they know would give them heartburn. Um, and instead of immediately taking medication or taking medication beforehand, what they were doing is they would wait for the symptoms to come. And so they would wait for that first burn. Some people, it wasn't a set thing. Some people would wait for the first burn then they'd take their medication. Some people would sit with it for a half hour or an hour, whatever it is. And 
we're doing individual interviews, but this kind of theme was coming up. Um, and they didn't know they knew this, but then all of a sudden, when you start exploring it deeply, they all started talking about this idea, like you do the crime. Now you got to do the time they were punishing themselves, you know, irrationally, they didn't have to, but they felt like I did this to myself. I knew I was doing it to myself. So now I'm going to kind of punish myself and live with that pain a little, then take my medication. So that's just a classic example of someone not really being aware of that behavior, um, you know, even going into our study, but, you know, being aware of that behavior, but then they were starting to have this moment where they realized, you know, that's what they're doing to themselves. So, so those are the kind of things they were unconsciously not relieving their pain because they felt like they deserved the pain a bit. Yes. Yep. Yes. It's kind of, yeah. Which is a hugely important idea. If you're a heartburn medication to know that that's the emotion you're dealing with guilt and you know, this sort of yeah. thing too. So, yeah. What would be like, if we, were, if we were generating ideas, how would we, what would we do with that? To, to how, how, how is that useful information for us? Well, I think in communicate for communications, you can take it a number of ways. One, just by showing empathy that you understand this is what's going on here, you know, and you could do that in a humorous angle, you know, doing it too. But if your problem you're solving uh, as a heartburn medication is to relieve guilt from people as quickly as possible or stop them from even feeling guilty, something like that, you could reframe that, uh, that metaphor, that, that, that emotion that they're thinking about too. Um, the communications, I think easier one, you know, I don't know in that product innovation sense that there's much you can do with that insight there, but this was for communications at the time. Is, is, um, folks that bring clients that bring you in, is it mostly for innovation or mostly for marketing or is it, I'm, I'm sure it's both, but is, is it more one? It, it is both. I mean, it's almost, almost 50, 50. We do a lot of innovation work and early innovation work, a client getting into a new category and they want to understand it. Uh, you know, that type of stuff, the foundational insight work um, versus product testing stuff. We'll do a little bit of that, but it's not, you know, that's, it's um, even when we do that concept test kind of stuff, it's more about the metaphors and emotions than it is about, you know, we won't, don't you do usability stuff or anything like that. Um, but I'd say innovation is probably about our product developments, about half the stuff. And then the other half is marketing, communications, branding work. Um, and as you know, they both kind of blend together. So sometimes clients are using us for both of those things. Um, because a discussion we've often had is around, um, so I was mentioning the hierarchy of jobs before, and uh, something we've often discussed is you need to focus on the right level uh, of the hierarchy. It's a, there's, a, there's a choice involved at some point where you say, okay, I'm not going to help people um, be at peace, but I'm going to help them you know, cook a meal or something. So you mm -hmm. know, try and choose the right level. Yeah. And, and I mean, I see, I, I do see parallels between the, the, the depth, you, the, the, the depth uh, you talk about in the metaphors and um, the level of abstraction. I don't know if it's exactly a one-to-one -one thing, but I, I see kind of parallel there. And, and just to build on Scott's question, um, I mean, the way I understand it, also in jobs to be done is that if you're, you're you're talking about marketing and advertising, it's it can be really good to go into the higher abstract levels, or as you would say, in the deeper levels, the more subconscious deep needs that people, deep metaphors that people use, and and 
this is so my question is basically um, do you have you noticed the same thing in terms of how do you tailor now your your technique if you if you're talking about innovation we're often going to be on a more a functional level maybe and and trying to to solve this how do you how do you tailor your technique to this issue that we've been confronted to yeah i think what you're trying to do even if if it's innovation or communications you're right you have to find and i think it even sometimes differs on the nature of the topic if it's fashion brand like kind of thing or if it's like a choice of toilet paper and some of these things functionality is more important and some of these things emotionality is more important so it kind of, of sometimes going to depend but i do think there's a general rule of thumb you're right you have to figure out that like middle ground which tends to be the more usable stuff to start innovating around or communicating around versus just showing someone you know in extreme jubilation and you have no idea what got them there you know it, it could have been a <laughs> dishwashing detergent or it could have been a new pair of shoes you know so it's like you know finding that middle ground um but i think like when we go in when we're looking into innovation we still want to know all of those key emotions that la that these ladder up to because that can be a, an inspiring way to think about innovation too like here's a set of you know these mid-level concepts that are all about energizing here's a set that are all about calming, you know, whatever. And then we can start to use that. So you need to know that higher order. And also when you then start developing products or developing communications and you want to go out and test them with consumers, you want to know that they're, you know, you might show them that mid-level concept. And then as you're doing your smarter interviewing and talking with them, you can say, how does this make you feel or what? And then they can say, well, this makes me feel energized, you know, this, and then you're like, okay, good. That's what our intention was even if you're not communicating it explicitly, we can ladder them up to that space around the proper energize. And if they don't say that, then you can say, okay, we're not quite there yet. We haven't tapped into the emotion. We know this is specifically designed to. Um, so yeah, there's, so ultimately in the end, you want to make sure you're, you know, communicating the whole story, whether some of that's explicit or some of that's implicit. Yeah. By the way, I have to, to sneak this in. I, I stumbled upon it. I mean, I stumbled upon a, a beautiful example of what happens if you go way too high and way too abstract. So there was in, in, uh, I think it was just in Switzerland. I hope for the company it was just in Switzerland. I don't, I'm not going to say what the company was, but their kind of slogan and what they were pushing is that, uh, so in, in English, it's, it would be true living is the choice of an insurance that understands you. Now I feel like that's way too high. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're trying to build a connection up there where it's, I'm not so sure if that yeah. really is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand that kind of, I don't know how, how you say it, but I understand that there is a tendency that you want to play on this level and kind of, kind of, uh, in a certain sense, it's also true, right? I mean, I'm not just making fun of them. In a certain sense, that might actually help in a very, very distant relationship. It, it, that might actually be true, but it's not, it's not the thing that clicks. It's not what people kind of yeah. naturally think of when they think it's of too far of a stretch and i'm sure yeah if you did research you could ladder people up to that higher order thing yeah but you're right it's just like too far of a leap to kind of explicitly just use as <laughs> yes. and, and assume they can understand that yeah so yeah. so so talking about leaps i i actually wonder if we could maybe 
go maybe go back a little and just uh, define what a metaphor is a bit more formally because uh, yeah. I think we we kind of vaguely discussed it but uh, I would love to dive a bit more into that. If, uh, I want to okay. admit something before we do that. For I, I went <laughs> in anticipation. I was reading definitions of metaphor, metaphor versus simile, <laughs> and then I was I was immediately startled to learn that we say them every ten to twelve seconds. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, a yeah. lot of the things that you before you define it, um, you know, I just think up uh, maybe. I mean, I just didn't think of them in terms of metaphors. I think of just terms of language and and slang. Um, now that you now that you you call them out as metaphors, I, I can see that uh, more clearly. But yeah, we definitely would love to know your your definition. Yeah. So my definition, the way we think of it at our firm, is a broad definition. So we talk about metaphor. When we talk about metaphor, it encompasses simile, analogy, metaphor. As so, we use it in the broadest sense recognizing that a metaphor is technically different from a simile, technically different from analogy, but the whole space we kind of think as metaphoric thinking. And just to define it, it's literally like X is like Y. X experience is like Y experience. Or, and that's what you're doing with the metaphor. Um, you know, it's like, you know, walking on eggshells in this room. You know, that's a metaphor for what that experience is like um, doing that. So uh, that's often just, you know, what it is simply. And that's what we were saying earlier. It kind of comes from categorization. This is like that. Um, you know, so categorization theory is probably the root of it. Um, it's just human nature to categorize things. That's what we do when you, you know, see a, uh, an animal, a cat walking down the street, you categorize it as a cat not a dog, not, you know, and so different things. And that's where, you know, we do it as marketers too, in our segmentations, categorizing all the time, but metaphor broadly is just anything in that space where you're taking one concept and applying it to another concept. I have to share this. The, um, um, when I, well, when I was with John Deere, we did a project. Well, one of the hardest things about tractors is what should the stupid thing look like? Like you can talk about how it, things need to do faster, more efficient, all those things. But, but at the end, but then you have people designing things and showing you pictures. And what we, the problem we had was, well, we have a designer draw them all up and I like this one. You don't like that one. You don't like that one. And so it's like, it just seemed like the stupidest, like most objectives, like going nowhere. So we had a real, we had a really great, um, consultant working with us and where we I didn't think about metaphors, but what he did was we went out and did qualitative and we got all these favorable terms for what a tractor should look like. And I, I remember these so well. One was it should it should be more of a tool than a toy. I remember that one. And this is not a political comment at all, but this is just what the data said. They wanted it to be masculine, not feminine. Now, it didn't matter who the, the, the gender of the respondent, it didn't matter. The, the tractor needed to be tool, not toy, masculine, not feminine. And so then we had all these concepts made. We just took them to the customers and we on on a board i mean it was it was 16 feet long and you would put tool here toy there and you would have them you give them the pictures and they would uh -huh. hang it hang it on the wall and we got all this data and it was it was it it brought some objectivity it brought some process to this otherwise completely subjective 
means of what should this thing look like and it, it worked amazingly well worked yeah that's exactly but that's metaphoric thinking in a sense you're not even realizing it at the time they're doing a lot of this anyways just yeah masculine versus feminine that's a metaphor it's not it's a machine it's not literally male or female it's a right. you know bunch of pieces of metal you know woven together but um yeah but that's exactly it and that's how we think about these things uh you know in, in terms of all these products or what, what are those kind of conceptual metaphors that we we use to think about them one of the interesting things about that looking back on it like when you evaluate a survey one of the things you wonder about well, how quickly can a customer understand it makes sense well they understood that game in a second they, yep. you didn't have to keep it no you know you didn't have to explain anything you just that's tool that's toy put this paper up, put this drawing up there. And it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, it's just, it was so fast that's, and easy. Yeah. That's one of the beauties of metaphor. And I talk about that as finding the right conceptual metaphor to talk about your product. Sometimes it's with your consumers, but other times it's internal stakeholders, you know, and you just find that right way. Our product, it's not a soft drink. It's a, uh, you know, whatever. And you kind of come up with that. And everyone's just like, I get it. I see what you mean. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, well, just maybe a, just a side note to bounce off what Scott was saying. How how would this work for for, for a, the functional aspect, say, of the tractor? So, how would the metaphors help for the the, the functional decisions? Because you're talking more about the the design yeah. aspect. So, so in that sense, um, imagine this kind of concept of masculine versus feminine came out in research and people talking about that, that kind of a thing, we would say, you know, what specifically about a John Deere tractor is masculine or, or what specifically about this concept is masculine? They'd say, oh, well, it's those big, you know, meaty tires. That's kind of, that's one of those things. What, what is it about that tire that makes you feel that way? Well, you know, it's just kind of burly or it feels like it's stronger. Um, I mean, it's, you know, they might, you know, you might, if they were talking about the seat or something like that, and might say this kind of, you know, this design here feels, you know, more like feminine to me. Well, oh, interesting. You know, what's feminine about that? Why feminine? You know, is that good or bad? Or, you know, asking those types of questions and, and very much you can get down to like the products, um, you know, the functional product attributes, the headlights, the shape of them, if they're, you know, square versus round, I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know what those would be in this. Mm. I'm not familiar with that topic, but all of those are actual product cues that you're giving off. And even the names, like you think about, you know, a popular sports car here is the Ford Mustang. They named it that Mustang is yeah. communicating horsepower, strength, you know? So like, and I think then you start to design a car that you feel has, you know, it's not curves, it's big and square and, you know, those types of things too. So I think, you know, with any of these kind of metaphors that can help you, um, you know, start to figure out even to very specific design cues about them. Generating product names is also something that is sort of in the realm of the subjective. And it, it seems like this technique it just seems like it would be highly useful for that. Is that one of the applications that folks look to? Yeah. Help? Well, well, we've done a lot of naming research over the years and, you know, I have three concepts that you want to name your, and it's a big decision too. I mean, we haven't done work for Ford Mustang, but that's a big decision, what you're going to call this new sports car. Um, and so we'll go out there and get, you know, they have three names they want to try. And again, we haven't done that with them, but you know, we, three names we want to try out and we'll go out and get all the metaphoric associations 
um, you know, uh, around that, uh, that, that topic for them. And yeah, it's a, a really neat way to see it. Well, that's cool. This metaphor of a Mustang conjures up all positive connotations, or there's actually some negative baggage that comes with that. It's a little too wild or it's a, you know, I don't know, but right. Um, yeah. yeah. They should have really. They should have worked with somebody like you before they named the Pinto. I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> in that case, maybe the maybe the car. Re- I guess the the name was fine, but the car then influenced how the name was interpreted. Yeah. Or the Gremlin, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So I had another question uh, relating to the metaphor definition, and I, I I'm going to try and see if I can uh, express it correctly. Um, so uh, ultimately, in innovation and marketing too. I mean, we're trying to understand factors in how people make decisions. I mean, I think in the end, that's what it comes down to. And so decision-making is taking action. And it it seems to me that, so a metaphor is broadly speaking, okay, similarly, analogy, a representation of something of a, a, that's how I would express it. Maybe it's not quite right, but the, mm-hmm. it, a metaphor is, is a kind of, it's really nearly a function. You go from, okay, one object to another object. You represent something by something else. And so, but a representation in itself is, is not really sufficient in my view to, to, to explain action. It seems to me there's, there's an important ingredient there that's, that's kind of, of missing, um, which is, I mean, I, I can... I can see objects, I can see things and put names on, on things. I can, and I can say, this looks like this and, and all this, but it doesn't really tell me, okay, now I'm going to do this or that. And, and I think the, the element that's missing is the idea of needs or of, of desire or value. And how does this come into your framework? And how does this, this, this yeah, how does this come in and link up with the metaphors? Yeah, so we do, and I think even jobs to be done, I mean, it's another way clients look at these things are need states. And, you know, there's, you know, there's motivations, et cetera. There's different ways jobs to be done. I think a really good one that the industry is embracing now. Um, but we do a lot of this kind of work where in our process, you uncover the different need states, the different needs that uh, a category has for consumers. And it might be through the metaphor, but it also might be through laddering uh, or whatever. And our process, by the way, uh, metaphor elicitation generally doesn't solve all the world's problems. I mean, we're a, a specialized research firm that you bring us in for certain things, but not everything. And, you know, so there's not, it's, you know, certain things that ZMET, we would tell clients that's not good for. Um, but needs, we do get into needs. Um, if we're doing a study on soft drink category, for instance, I keep using that example, but if you're doing a study on that, um, you'll find some needs there. It's about, uh, refreshment. It's about, you know, and it might come from that image that, you know, someone, you know, uh, diving into a pool of water. Well, what does this mean? Well, this is that, you know, refreshed feeling. I feel every time I, you know, do that first crack of the can and, and drink my, my soft drink, you know, what is it about that? You know, what is that need? Why do you want, why do you have that need? Well, it's usually like, a, you know, been a long day or whatever, or, you know, what happens after you have that need? So, but that is a need. There is refreshment as a need for this or um, indulgence as a need. 
Um, so we'll think of these needs, it, you know, kind of different ways, but a need might be indulgence. I just need my treat. Um, and we'll explore, well, you know, why is it that you need a treat? Well, sometimes I just feel like I've earned it, you know, and I, I have to kind of, do. so we'll get those needs, even if it might not be a metaphoric conversation, but often what we'll do when we uncover that need is we'll then use a metaphor or ask them about that, say, you know, what else in life gives you that same indulgent feeling that drinking your favorite soft drink does? And you'll get a cool metaphor too. Well, it's kind of like that indulgent feeling when you, um, you know, uh, you know, take your first steps onto a beach on vacation in your bare feet. Oh, how is that similar to that? How is it? And whatever those kind of things too, because it again gives a, some more context around that that helps you really understand. Oh, it's that kind of a moment. Um, so, so you do get into needs, but sometimes it's more of a practical conversation in there too. I don't know if does that make sense. Is that? Yeah, yeah, it, it does. I mean, I'm I'm trying to maybe maybe a different way of asking a, a, a similar question is, um, I mean, are these metaphors always? Um, I mean, they, they're not always representing needs. I mean, they what what do they? Maybe I'll just go into this because in the, in your book you talk about the seven deep metaphors, and you've mentioned now that actually I think you've extended the list slightly. Yeah, those are the seven giants. We chose to just focus on the most common ones that come up. But even the then, most, when we wrote the book, we the knew most these common others ones. too. Yeah. Maybe I can just read them out so the listeners, so you've got balance, transformation, journey, container, connection, resource, and control. And I think now you've got more, but those were the seven giants, yep. main ones you, you discussed. And... My what what I, I was slightly struck by when I, I I read this was that these different things are, uh, are somehow ontologically of a very different uh, type, you know, and some I actually very I found very similar. So I actually found there were kind of maybe two groups. So for example, one that stuck out was container. A container seems to me a very different thing than balance for example because mm -hmm. balance is something you want to achieve it's some kind of goal and a container is quote-unquote a solution and and i was kind of wondering if that matters or if that doesn't matter and how does this work in the whole context of trying to then build a solution or innovate yeah so you will see some of these deep metaphors in certain topics kind of more closely associated with each other so like um, container, you'll often see control pops up there also. Exactly, um, you yeah. think about this in a health, it's, uh, you know, we see a lot of like disease states where I got my diagnosis and, you know, I was in control of my life. And then I got this cancer diagnosis or this migraine diagnosis, whatever the severity is diagnosis that now I feel trapped. And now I feel like, you know, uh, I'm being attacked and, what does medication do? It kind of protects you again and lets you get back into control over your life. So, you know, there's some common times now they don't always appear together, but you'll see those balance and transformations. Another one, usually when you're going from an imbalanced state to a balanced state. So when you're going from tired to awake, it's because a product like coffee is transforming you from tired to awake. So, you know, you'll often see those ones go together too. So yeah, it's good. You picked up like, those are definitely some of these kind of relationships you'll see with them. Um, but what's neat is every study we go into, you know, sometimes we've done a lot of work in a lot of categories, 
big categories over time. Now you kind of have your hunch, but we still always go in with open to whatever hits us, but you still kind of know certain things are going to come up like container and control and healthcare issues. Um, but then, you know, often it'll be interesting. This particular healthcare issue has this deep metaphor of journey popping. I've never seen that before, you know, so that's kind of the fun of it to see what the magic is when you pick that focus area, what, what the deep metaphors are activated and more importantly, what themes of those deep metaphors are activated. Uh, like I said, is it about self-connection or connection to others? Or those are, that's kind of the, the context that matters. So. I love also that these, these, I mean, the, these deep metaphors themselves are, I mean, they're like metaphors as such. I think you, you they, they are, you get a sense of them, but it's it probably not possible to make it comp- fully explicit of what they actually mean. I mean, if you could do that, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't need to, you wouldn't need to, the metaphor itself. Right. So I think it's 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 in itself something that you have to understand metaphor, and you do understand metaphorically what what, what is meant by it. But it's not you do, you do not you never get to a point where okay here is the the set of uh, uh, the set of statements by which container is defined. If you could yeah. do something like that, you wouldn't need the metaphor. So I think <laughs> yeah. I just like this, um, the, yeah. yeah, that it, it in itself is an interpretation in a certain sense of how, of what of what of what that is. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like I don't know. I, I'm wondering about Scott and Jonathan. So I feel like, in a sense, that the questions you're you're mentioning, the things that you're asking for, and the way you're asking it in the interviews, it, I feel like it's almost like you're you're asking very very similar questions I would ask in a jobs to be done study, but you're listening for completely different answers. I have mm-hmm. a very I have a very precise definition of what I'm listening for, which you could call an outcome statement or a job metric or whatever you want to call it. But, but you're listening for something else. And I think it is very interesting to see to what different conclusions or, or what kind of, because in our study, so, so I think what we can do very, very clearly is pick out or make conscious, even in a certain sense, what are the outcomes people expect when they want to get a job done? I mean, that is kind of the essence yeah. of what, what jobs should, should be doing. However, I think the more abstract you get, the, the harder it is to really get to a certain sense of, of getting these, these outcomes out. And I think there it's probably something like, like the metaphor approach is much, much, much more useful or, or kind of is more um, link, kind of lends itself more to think about those, those more general, well, generous, I don't mean this in a, in a derogatory way, but it, these more abstract kinds of things that consumers just have in their mind. I mean, Jonathan mentioned the hierarchy that we use and that is a way of kind of linking how, or how the different jobs relate to each other. And in the very first version, we had, so we spoke of a bigger why, a lower how, and we had a deeper why in there. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of this th- a third dimension in there and we never really could make explicit what we actually mean by this. So <laughs> I think these are, we just, well, there's a Maslow pyramid or whatever, or whatever you take, but we, and then I think maybe something like these metaphors are, are, are like a universal thing that is always attached to what, to whatever level of, of, of job or, or product that you're, that you're thinking of. Yeah. yeah that's one way to think of it. I, I agree. And, and yeah, I, it's neat often in jobs to be done work that we're brought in for there is a process already in place that's a very good way at getting at what you're just talking about your process does and then we're bringing some color to that or we're bringing some overarching framework to it that all of what you're doing then kind of make you know can be made sense of and say oh it's because of this 
you know, freedom from containment that, you know, these are about that. So often it can just be, and that's why I think it's like great when you marry up two or three different approaches to solve yeah. an issue is always better than one. Um, yeah. you know, because then you, you know, get the richer portrait too. So yeah, that's neat. I feel like it had a, Sorry, oh, sorry go on. pressure to put on any one study to answer everything. Yep. It's yeah. nice to oh. have various mm. ones different. I even encourage folks go look at go look at your warranty data. Go look at all the um the help desk where people have called in and complained about stuff. Grab all those things and compare them. And uh, I was having the same thought that um you had Jan and and I think what you're about to comment on Lindsay before I interrupted you <laughs> that um that well you know obviously we sort of see, see things from a jobs we done lens which folks you know, it's highly focused on functional things. And it's a bit ironic because today I just wrote a LinkedIn post on emotions and um, <laughs> it's, it's, I would say it's an undeveloped part of Justin, but maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's because, you know, maybe it's a hammer trying to do something a screwdriver should do. Maybe, um, you know, it, it certainly seems like this metaphor method has a lot of promise for speaking to those. And I'm highly interested in, in uh, learning these 15 or, or 17 as, as we, uh, after, after we wrap up, I'd go for 16, 16. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no clue. It's, it's an uneducated guess. I like the number 17, whatever it is, it's going to be a cool sounding. Like, can you, can we get to 21? Like a prime number. It has to be a prime number. You know? We'll let you join in our nerdy debates at the office and <laughs> see if uh, you seem like you'd be good fits to help us uh, solve the, the right number oh. of these. About seven minutes into this, I was like, "Dude, we're we're this we're we're ready to nerd out right now." I can tell. <laughs> I can tell we were going to enjoy your conversation. I have a I have a question. So, for a product manager listing, and product managers are often put in the role, often don't have a lot of um, interviewing experience, and are, are expected in short order to get out there, start cup interviewing customers, gather insights. What are a few tips you could give to a product manager as they're from you, from within your method that they might be able to put to use and say their next interview or two. Yeah, I think I just, I think one of my favorite questions to ask, and it's a metaphor elicitation question, but it's a simple one is just what else in life gives you this same experience. Mm. And I think, cause what you're trying to do is understand in a more nuanced way as a product manager, what customers want out of an experience. And, you've heard a million times what they'll say. I want it to be more reliable or, you know, the cost is an issue or, yeah. and that's where you kind of start zoning out even, or like, I don't know how else to ask this because I know what they're going to tell me. They're going to say, you know, they want a the better customer service or something. So that's just a great question that forces that customer to answer in a different way than they might typically. So what else in life gives you that same, or what else in life gives you the same, um, you know, uh, reliability that you'd like our products reliability to, to give you. Well, it's that same, it might be another product, which is fine. It's that same reliability of when you put on your favorite, uh, you know, uh, pair of shoes and you just know they're going to be comfortable and durable and get you through the day, or it might be something more metaphoric. It's like that reliability of when, you know, uh, you visit your parents and you just know that they're going to be there to welcome you in. Well, that's kind of cool. And then that's, you know, something manager can, you can even have a bunch of, that's what we do. And we go on from there and ask a bunch of, you know, uh, metaphor questions around that too. But, but even just that right there gets a little different of a way to kind of engage them. So that, that's a question I always think is important to ask um, as you do that. And then I think just kind of the, almost the, 
I think good, good product managers probably ask this anyways, but um, it's easy to not ask it, but just to ask why a, a couple times, <laughs> you know, so why do you want that? And sometimes it's, it's really awkward because they'll say, I want a product that's more reliable and you might say why, and you might feel like, well, obviously I know why, because they want it to work better, but it's kind of cool sometimes when you force them to, you know, explain why, because often a product manager will just assume, well, he wants more reliable. Good to know. I know why they want that, but often, you know, say why, and they'll say, well, because this is about an expression of who I am in my workplace. Well, that's a cool topic versus I just want to be able to do my job. You know, and so now you've gotten to this cool place and then say, well, why is that important to you? And you're just kind of, you know, you don't want to ask that 20 times to that person, but once or twice just for, you know, um, managers to ask the why question, I think can often turn out some, some new insights. Mm. Yeah. I think especially about the obvious, the obvious things, yeah. the things that you would assume you would know, but yeah. I mean, you always have this, you can sit in an office, you can try to imagine what customers th think, and you can even believe that you have caught it all right? From a theoretical or whatever point of view. And then you go out there, you talk to two or three and you realize there's so much more there that I yeah. kind of completely missed, would never have thought of. And that's really the beauty of, of, of talking to customers, yeah. I think. We do this in our metaphor studies with talking to patients, sometimes with like pretty serious health issues, sometimes terminal issues, even we've done in the past, but the why there is they'll say, you know, I want to take my medication. Well, why? Well, I don't want to die. And as much as you don't want to ask it <laughs> we do yeah. and we say why don't you want to die i mean at some level it's really obvious but their answer to it is yeah. great sometimes because then they're like well i still have an impact to make on this world or i want to be there for my family or you know and so it's one of these questions well you know why they don't want to die but ask it anyways because it forces you to kind of understand is there a specific reason why so yeah i was thinking it kind of it it, it helps you reframe the, in, the first question, yeah. uh, kind of asking for a second time, it helps you reframing the answer, reliable, reliability, or okay, not dying, that's a, but, but that's a very different topic, yeah. but yeah. reliability. And then the second or third why gives you such great clues of reframing what reliability really concretely means, I think. I'm just noodling over. It's just like 95% of thought is unconscious. Oh, you go. I wrote that one down too. <laughs> like it's um, it's just it's it's almost like I it's um I just need to smoke something and sit back and think about that. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like well, it's 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 I mean it's sort of crazy if you think about I mean if you just think of forgetting about research, just think about yourself. So like like I'm I'm talking I'm communicating to you guys with five percent. I got ninety five percent doing other things i mean i get that i have to breathe and my heart needs to pump and i or whatever but i don't know yeah. I don't, i'm not sure that's what you're referring to i'll tell you another thought that i had you brought up a term that came up in an earlier podcast uh, of ours um with with uh, ronan healy that has yes. i don't know if you listen to that one but they have they are consultants with uh, lego play mm -hmm. the term is embodied con cognition yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I do have that question. What if you could tell us a little bit more about embodied cognition and how this concept is is um, important or relevant for uh, at all? Yeah, sure. So again, uh, you know, as I was saying before, it's tied to why we have these deep metaphors at all. Every single one of those deep metaphors can be traced back to some bodily experiences we've had yeah. almost through infancy, starting at infancy and experiencing the world uh, connection, literally. Um, 
touching other humans, container, your mom's embrace, um, even starting from the womb, people would argue is already giving that, you know, being this sense of containment um, force. You know, we all know what it's like to get hit by something. And then later on in life, you say, oh, I, this idea just hit me. The only reason you said that is because you have this expression of an idea hitting, you know, of some if you physically being hit before or something like that or hitting something. So all of them come from uh, all these deep metaphors. And therefore, the language we use to express these frames all come from this idea that we're bodily creatures and we, you know, all... Again, as humans, we're all going to generally have, you know, the four limbs and just, you know, um, our bodies like that. And so all of our experiences come in through our senses, through our body, and therefore you start to think of the world that, that way. And I mean, it's a pretty fascinating kind of concept. Um, yeah, I have to listen. I hadn't yeah. listened to that, that particular podcast. I know the one you were talking about uh, from looking at them. I'll have to go back and listen to uh, their their conversation about <laughs> oh, it. So good. That's, yeah. I, I think you guys will have a lot in common in that. I mean, they're I don't they're using the, the Legos. You build something, but it, you're responding to it. I think there's a lot yeah. there's a lot in common. What in um in yeah. for the way you approach things. We didn't we didn't we weren't able to get too deep into that there either. But yeah. I, I've become sort of fascinated recently with Antonio Damasio's writing. I yeah. mean, I'd read some stuff earlier. I, I, to me, it was super useful in, um, well, there's this idea that, you know, either we're just purely functional or we just purely emotion or yeah. one's good and one's bad. And he's, the, and he's the one that helped me to understand they're just all together. I, yeah. or, or like this idea of being rational, irrational, it's like your emotions and it all, it's all one brain. It all works. There's different parts and there's something to cite and all that, but it, but it works together to help to make decisions in the, the kid, the one of his patients, and you might be familiar with the story. There was one that had some brain damage and he had lost all ability of emotion. And so mm-hmm. he, he would show him a picture of a tragic scene or, a, of, you know, so, something, whatever the most horrible thing. And he would know intellectually, I'm supposed to feel something, but he felt nothing, absolutely nothing. But mm-hmm. he, he knew his name. He could do everything. He had all, all his memory, all his intelligence, but he could make zero decisions. He couldn't, he couldn't choose what to eat for lunch. He couldn't choose uh, what toothpaste he wanted. He couldn't, he couldn't yeah. choose, start something to mm-hmm. stop something. So he, with his emotion, without access to his emotion, he had all his intelligence, but he could not make he literally was unable to or with great difficulty make decisions i'm not sure if you're familiar with that story but i am yeah yeah, yeah he's I'm fascinating that, that's fascinating and yeah we're fans of damasio's he was actually one of the early uh, one of the thinkers in my dad's early work kind of pulling a lot of this together uh damasio's work feeds into a lot of this too he's, yeah, he's a brilliant writer i know i really like this i mean from a philosophical perspective it is it is this embodied thinking or, or all that that way of I mean, thinking about thinking is is really in a in a in, in a traditional sense really a reversal of how we would think of the relationship between body body and mind. So, in a very, I mean, I think even uh, this is because of your post. I think on Demacio's uh, or his his book is called Descartes' uh, Mistake. Error. I think or just yeah, error, error, error exactly. So, traditionally, very strongly, the relationship in philosophy is the body is in, uh, the mind is in control of the body or even and i'm now just trying to i have to think in all of these metaphors i mean play plato i think he literally says that the body is a cage for the mind so mm-hmm. thinking in a sense of contain and 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 traditionally it's always thought that that the mind is some kind of superior to the body and then we have to drag this thing around blah blah, blah. 
and it really starts maybe with Nietzsche or whatever. So I'm I'm writing on Nietzsche. That's why why I think it starts kind of there because he makes a distinction between smaller reason and big reason or small mind and big mind. And the big mind is the body. And the small mind is what we call the conscious thinking stuff. So I really like this reversal. I think where we learn more and more that the idea of that little light bulb that we have in here that we call consciousness and we're so proud of. And of course, Freud and, and Jung and then the whole psychoanalytic movement kind of taught us, well, that probably is not, not the center of control. Let's, let's use another kind of, of metaphor. So from a philosophical perspective, I really like this, this reversal almost of the, of, the, of, of the relationship between mind and body. Absolutely. I'll actually recommend a book uh, that we have. And I'm, I just pulled up because I couldn't remember the author. I want to make sure. Uh, Annie Murphy, Paul, but we just finished it literally last month. We finished it. We do a book club here at uh, Olson's Altman every you know, quarter. We read a book and discuss it. But the one we picked this last quarter was The Extended Mind. Yeah, And it's, I don't know if you may have read it already too, but it talks about this concept too, even broader than our bodies being a cage for our mind how the world is a cage for our mind and our minds collectively, how much uh, talk about the mind is not something contained in your brain or even your body. Your mind is everywhere. And again, kind of philosophical angle of it too, but it's, it's pretty fascinating book too. Yeah. It's like uh, the force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a star Wars fan there. Yeah. But as you mentioned that I did, I was going to ask you for sort of your short list of books to read. So since you mentioned that one, what would, what would be on, else on your short list? Uh, yeah. The illusion of conscious will is a good one. Uh, some of these are heavier than others, um, but that that's a good one. Um, and uh, metaphors we live by is one that we recommend often yeah. too. And I'm trying to think, cause I know uh, these are some of my books up here uh, from our book club. They're either here at my uh, home office. Um, but uh Oh yeah, Robert Saldini's a uh, obviously a famous guy, but his book Persuasion is a great one to start to understand. Think about these frames um, more from a psychology perspective too. Um, but yeah, we can. I can actually send you. or might even have it on our website, our book club uh, book list. But there's some great ones. We'll draw some of them will be business related, but most of them tend to be some sort of social or mind science applications. Something from a different domain uh, yeah. kind of push us to well, uh, think. Um, I love that there is this book club. Yeah. I, th I feel like this whole podcast is also kind of one of extended book club where at, at the end of each podcast, we end up with a list of books that we yeah. have to read. Yeah. <laughs> I think I interrupted myself about the, about the book, but I, I wanted to get that list because I had, I had that question down. But um, what we were talking about before, I find myself also questioning, you know, there's this elephant and rider metaphor that's been so popular for how we make decisions. And I mean, these, those, those are you. They're useful, right? But it just seems. Um, uh, I feel like I, I feel like it was useful to understand this elephant and rider. Well, for folks that don't know about it, the idea is like the. Um, I guess our conscious is the rider trying to direct the elephant, and so here's Scott. I want to eat. Um, you know, the the, the elephant's going to go where it wants to go. So if I want the donut with the little rider inside Scott's brain, like no, don't do that. We gotta. You know, we're going to the beach in three weeks, and you know, you're you're already can barely wear your bathing suit. But the elephant's like, oh, I'm going to eat. It. So the elephant's sort of in control. But you know, it's it's useful for understanding a few things. But um, I, I find that I'm almost more interested. I find that I'm. It's not good enough, I guess, for where I am right now. I want to better understand um, decision making, and so I think this. I really 
Uh, appreciate everything you. I feel like this has been a great conversation for me personally to help get a little further down that road. Yeah, completely agree. Completely yeah. agree. It's a big topic, though, isn't it? Like how people. There was a really. <laughs> there was a book that was sort of discredited. I don't know if you guys saw it. It was discredited because apparently there was some plagiarism. But I found it really useful. It's called How We Decide by a guy named mm. Jonah Lair. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, Lindsay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was so good. I thought it was so useful, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. And apparently it's a few things were made. So maybe, maybe I'm just <laughs> myself. The things are plagiarized, but I found it. But you know how it is when you read something that's in sync with what you already believe to be true, then you're like, God, this is brilliant. So <laughs> yeah. Confirmation bias. That could yeah. be a problem too. I have to ask one last question. Do you have a favorite metaphor? Hmm. I... <laughs> It's a common question. I have a couple. <laughs> oh, really? I have okay. a couple. Yeah. I mean, not a common question, but I've been asked that before, I should say. And I have a couple. Um, and I like the container metaphor because mm. there's a lot of great themes of it. There's positive containment, your safety net, security blanket. There's also negative containment, shackled, imprisoned, handcuffed. So there's like, to me, a lot of richness. And I think so many of life's situations have container roots. And then the same notion, transformation, the marketer in me loves the deep metaphor yeah. of transformation because just about every product or service or experience we have in life transforms you or is intended to transform you in one way uh, or another, you know, physical transformation, if it's like a coffee or emotional transformation, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, social transformation. If it's a, yeah, so all of these things, I, I think the marketer me always loves that one because it's always cool to see what nuances yeah. of that transformation are coming up in cosmetics versus healthcare versus, you know, packaged goods or whatever. So Although I, I, I might add that in the cybernetics and systems thinking uh, people, um, some people will say that the high le highest level uh, goals is more something to do with balance because, um, the, the the idea is that you try to maintain your your identity and you're trying to maintain your mm -hmm. states homeostasis is what we use and this the example everyone uses is obviously the uh, thermostat and that all these transformational goals in the end are in order to maintain a certain state or livable state or might maintain an identity yeah so you're preferring balance is that what you're saying well because i think balance is <laughs> is for me is somehow related to homeostasis i think uh, yeah. the the this idea of maintaining yourself in mm -hmm. a certain state because i mean if you change your identity it's in somehow a kind of death right i mean you're you're a different person so you're a different a different entity so something has disappeared and something new has, has come along yeah that's interesting yeah that's really um, I'm, you're now making me think of are some of these metaphors even like contradictive not contradictive but like in in, in fight so do, does go balance and transformation really go together or some I will safety and freedom for example yeah yeah security right or or adventure and and safety yeah exactly yeah well, I mean I mean that's the, there's this um psychological um school called the method of levels based on perceptual control theory and and the whole idea 
but I don't think it's just them. I mean, I think others have uh, mentioned this, but the whole idea is that a lot of our psychological problems come from conflicts between subconscious goals that we have. So you're doing something for one reason, but subconsciously you're doing, you want two things that are not possible. So safety and freedom say, and you're not conscious about it. And this creates a conflict. And uh, I mean, it's one theory. Well, a good point to end it because I think we started the next two hour discussion <laughs> <laughs> of, of <laughs> discussing two hours. So, so if, if people want to know more about Zement and, 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 and your, your agency, where can they find more uh, about you and, and your approach? Yeah. So probably the best starting point would just be to visit our website, olsenzaltman.com. And uh, through there, there's a contact us. My specific contact name is also in there. And you're more than welcome to reach out directly to me. I'd love to chat with folks who want to hear more about this kind of work. Hey, Lindsay, thank you really so much for doing this. That concludes today's Product Quest podcast with Lindsay Saltman. Lindsay, again, well, all the thanks that we can have. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as well. To your listeners, please send any comments. Uh, guest or topic recommendations or any ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com and see you next time. Thank you guys so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Really interesting. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye-bye.